We have all heard of fakers, but have you ever heard of a fake faker, a faker of fakery? My guest today believes he has exposed such a person, a person who applied his faked fakery to the point of deceiving a great director, a movie star, a publisher, Broadway producers, and perhaps the entire nation. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 oh. trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. William Abagnale am known as the world's greatest imposter, and no wonder. In the course of my nefarious career, I've palmed myself off as a doctor, lawyer, college instructor, stockbroker, and airline pilot. To become an airline pilot, I merely bought a plastic ID card for $5, affixed an airline logo from a model plane hobby kit, and in no time at all was co-pilot for a major airline. As a bogus lawyer, I actually worked on a state attorney general staff. For six years, I also cashed over $2,500,000 in bad checks in 26 countries. Ultimately, I was sentenced to 72 years in prison. I served one year in France, one year in Sweden. I then served four years in a federal prison in this country. Paroled, I now devote my life to the prevention and detection of crime. Signed, Frank William Abagnale. Everybody likes a mystery. And they like mysteries that, well, frankly, sometimes involve fakes. I remember there was a film made some years back by Orson Welles, which was called F. For fake. Well, here is a story about another fake, uh, F in this case for Frank. Frank Abagnale, you may recall, is the main principal character in a film called Catch Me If You Can. It was directed by Steven Spielberg and also starred Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. It also incidentally became a major Broadway production. But prior to this, its genesis was really as a book. And prior to the book were various appearances by Frank on various television programs, in particular to tell the truth, and then later on the Johnny Carson show. What's ironic is it's quite questionable. In other words, it's very spurious if you consider whether or not Mr. Frank Abagnale actually told the truth. It might be, in fact, much to the contrary. Well, to help us sort through all of this, I am delighted to invite as my guest to Watching America another Alan, and yes, another doctor. Please welcome the author of a new book called The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Catching Truth While You Can. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Alan C. Logan. Oh, thanks very much, Alan. I really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. Well, I do too. I'm fascinated with this. Now, I've got to tell you, um, there's, there's some danger in doing a, a kind of an expose, which your book is, uh, and you're not singularly alone. There have been others who were suspicious about this gentleman, uh, as you uh, recount in your very well-written book. Uh, but when you ever cast dispersions about the integrity of a person, uh, or at least the truth of a person, um, others who are fans of such individuals will get angry. So my first question for you is, um, have people become angry with you for doing this investigative work? And uh, have you encountered hostility as a result? And if so, how have you dealt with it? It's a great question. And going into this uh, project, I certainly buckled up in anticipation uh, of that. But thankfully, that hasn't been the case. I could argue that there's sort of been a lack of interest on the part of some to, to leave it alone because it is such 
uh, well-known cultural phenomena. As you already mentioned, it was a you know best-selling book sold by the millions, a blockbuster film, uh, top grossing, and of course, as you mentioned, a Broadway play that continues to be put on by uh, high school and college kids today. So I was braced for that, but the general reception has been sort of, well, we must have known this, or, you know, we should have seen this coming, or, you know, and I'm really pleased about that, because I think fundamentally, since this has been billed as a true story, my intent going in this into this, and I really appreciate you said, it's such an important way to, to, to get this conversation going, because I'm not in this to cast dispersions, um, and make it go to great lengths to, to make it clear that in some sense, this isn't really the story of Frank Abagnale. It's the story of the people that he encountered, uh, or as it says in the book, the lives that he poured himself into, shaken and stirred. So if you're going to go up, uh, you know, onto highly rated television programming and create a life story and then do the same thing in film, and then more recently, which we can discuss, his talks at Google, which has been viewed over 13 million times, in our era where we really need to start thinking about post-truth and then claiming many things that are demonstrably false easily, not just Alan Logan saying this, but public records completely fly in the face of it. Well, then I think the, the public generally wants to know whether or not that's true or not. And if they're going to a Broadway play that's based on a true story, they, they want to know if it is, you know, some semblance. And everybody has the, the, you know, the understanding that when you go to Hollywood, of course, there's going to be artistic license. Everyone understands that and when we enjoy it. But there also needs to be some semblance of the truth if you're saying this is inspired by a true story. So so that was my long-winded way of saying that thankfully um, there really hasn't been much pushback because my recording is based on public records. It's not speculation. It's actually identifying records that as far as I can tell had never been or at least discovered in the modern era. My senior producer is Gina Gamboni, and uh, she brought you to my attention, and then immediately it clicked. And I actually remembered visiting the United States back in the 70s, I'm maging myself here, uh, and actually seeing the episode of To Tell the Truth. I think it was like circa 1978, 79, somewhere in there. And then I caught him again uh, on Carson. Uh, and I think these clips are available on, on YouTube to this day. One of the most uh, striking things about your book is you have an alternative uh, timeline, uh, which is, I think, uh, extremely helpful um, by really refuting, uh, you know, Frank's version of it versus uh, what may be the truth. I have a couple of questions for you. First of all, actually, I have more than a couple. But people, as we know, sometimes begin to believe their own lies if they repeat them long enough. And the technical psychological term for this is pseudologia fantastica. Uh, do you wonder if Frank Abagnale has transgressed reality in his own psyche and actually believes these kind of Walter Mitty-esque delusions? Well, there's plenty of research to support that notion. This was described in the early literature as something called mythomania, where individuals would even lay claim to have committed crimes. And in fact, you know, we can get to this when some uh, journalists, really amazing journalists, two in particular are worth discussing, started to, you know, uncover that, wait a second, these stories are just not adding up. They're, they're you know, untrue. Frank was basically implicating himself in crimes that didn't occur. And, and so in the mythomania sphere, the general gist of it is by mental health professionals at the time was that, yes, indeed, they do believe truly what it is that they're saying. I mean, over time, as these things become <laughs> cast into stone, this entire story of catch me if you can, um, yeah, I mean, I think it would only be normal to a, to an extent that you would start to believe some of these things, you know, where, you know, you have your book translated into dozens of foreign languages. Um, yeah, you, 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 you would think it would be normal to almost start to think, well, this really did happen to me because, um, you know, it, it's just becomes part of the fabric and, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure, though, to be honest, because I can't really get into his mind. And we can talk about this because, you know, others who have fact-checked him and discovered some things along the way have said it's a, a fool's errand, really. 
to try to determine what he's thinking and certainly going to him for verification of his claims is a fool's errand, as one professor put it in the early 1980s. Well, Dr. Logan, let's begin with how uh, you became involved. What was the inception, uh, I believe, having seen the film? And tell us about how you just kind of cottoned on to this idea of, I'm not going to let this one go. I'm going to check this out. Yeah. So for me, I started writing about the this medical con man called Robert Vernon Spears. I wrote a book about it, which predated this uh, The Greatest Hoax by about a year or two. And this was a fascinating character. I won't, you know, go into bore you with all the details, but the long and the short of it about Robert Vernon Spears was that he had fraudulently obtained a medical license and practiced as a Dallas doctor for about 10 years. And prior to that, um, had been running all sorts of imposter schemes uh, up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States and, and on and on. And when the book was published, many people compared him to Frank Abagnale, of course, as being one of the best known imposters and con men of the modern era. And so I said, okay, well, I guess I should just educate myself a little bit about Frank Abagnale. I'd seen the movie and I remember after the movie, just thinking to myself, wow, this just, this just seems a little outlandish, you know, just sort of beyond the, the norm of, of uh, what one person might do. So I started looking into it and with Spears or Ferdinand de Mara, who's known as probably arguably the greatest imposter of all time, you can go back into the newspaper archives prison, court, police, genealogy records, reporting was done in real time, so you can actually uh, see it. But when I started to look at Frank Abagnale, that wasn't the case at all. And by chance, I on Genealogy Bank, I noticed a little small two-by-two article from 1969 that mentioned his name being picked up and arrested for vagrancy in, in Baton Rouge. And right off the bat, I knew that that conflicted with his story in the talks at Google. Again, just to repeat, this talks at Google is worth uh, watching for your listeners uh, because he lays out a lot of his biographical claims in there. And he claims in the talks at Google that he was arrested only once in his life, and that was in Montpellier, France. Okay, so I'm like, all right, this is clearly conflicting with that. Let me look into this. And I really did my very best to track down uh, the victims that were described in these articles of Abagnale in Baton Rouge in 1969 and did, in fact, uh, track down Paula Parks, uh, who wrote the foreword to the book. And she had a hell of a story to tell that was really at odds with everything that I knew, you know, at least as far as the construction of the Catch Me If You Can tale goes. So it turns out that Abagnale was... Uh, did dress as a TWA pilot for a little bit. He said he was on furlough and he was looking for a job working with kids in Baton Rouge. And he had taken some jump seat flights. So for those I'm sure are familiar, but it's where airlines allow other pilots, co-pilots and personnel to ride for free on a competitor's airline. He's 20 years old. He gets on a flight. He meets Paula Parks and sort of befriends her a little bit and follows her down to Baton Rouge to briefly meet the parents just one time. And then a couple of weeks later, he shows up at the door to Paula Parks' parents' house, knocks the door and says, hey, remember me, I'm Paula's friend. And they welcome him in and they take him in. And he subsequently steals checks from them and then steals from a local business in Baton Rouge. This is not speculation. This is not Alan Logan saying this. These are in court records. He was convicted of this in June of 1969. So Paula started telling me her story, and I went to the Baton Rouge Police Department records. And sometimes it's tough. You can't get a lot of records. Sometimes they don't exist at all. But in the case of Baton Rouge, they had really amazing, extensive reporting from the police officers, the detectives at the time. So everything that Paula had told me was being verified through the Baton Rouge Police Department records. Before we continue with Paula, let me, if I may back up very, very briefly yeah. to bring the audience up. Um, there's major, early on, there's major discrepancies. For instance, in your book, you reveal that he was actually in the U.S. Navy, which is uh, absent from his uh, uh, book. 
uh, that he was in the Navy from 1964 to 65. He stole a car. Um, then he was uh, writing blank checks from um, a business. He had stolen this Ford Mustang and gone out to California to uh, Eureka. And he was discovered there to be um, uh, uh, guilty of, uh, of grand auto theft. And then he went to uh, uh, Comstock Prison in 1967, served time. Then he gets out. Then he does the TWA stint. And if I may just very succinctly put it, uh, Paula Parks is a, what used to be termed a stewardess in the old days of flying. And um, he takes a fancy to her. Starts chatting her up. She thinks he's always uh, well, charming, but she really doesn't want to go out to dinner with him. But he insists the flight's from New York to Miami. And uh, she says, no, thank you very much. I've got other plans. And he's very persistent. And she says, OK, I'll go with friends. So a friend comes along so she's not by herself. He shows up with roses at the hotel the next day, which kind of freaks her out. And she thinks she can't give this guy the shift. And then he finds out where she lives. She's very reluctant to divulge it. And as soon as she divulges it, she wishes she hadn't done that. And uh, sure enough, he shows up at the house with, uh, with plastic flowers and is even uh, more bizarrely involved. She thinks she's finally gotten rid of him. And then as we pick up with where you just left off, she finds out to her horror that her parents have let him in based on his charm and his shenanigans. And uh, moreover than that, he is sleeping in her childhood bedroom. So we'll go from there. Yeah, that, thank you for teeing all that up. So he's moved in under false pretenses. He's in sleeping in her bedroom, and the parents don't know it yet, but he has been poking through their belongings, discovered their checkbook, took checks from the back where they wouldn't be discovered, and he's taking the parents out to dinner. He's buying Paula's mother flowers. They cut a key to the house, and he's enjoying life with them. He also stole from a local business and Paula's uh, brother as well, evidently was a victim uh, and he cleaned out his savings account. Keep in mind that Frank Abagnale has maintained many times in print media, in oral interviews, that he never ever, quote, ripped off a single individual and stayed away from small businesses and only targeted hotels, banks, and airlines. So which, this is one of the reasons which made him attractive to Carson. I mean, the, the, the exactly. Idea, yeah. Yes, this is such an important point because that's the reason why people embrace the story. People love the fact that he did not target individuals and small businesses, and this is why this is such an important part of the story. But when Paula started discussing this with me, she said that she had these uh, letters that Mr. Abagnale wrote, and we'll get to those in a second, because they're a really important part of how this whole thing, the trap door opened up and the whole enterprise falls through the floor. So Abagnale, back to Baton Rouge, he's living in the house and he is telling people that he has a master's degree from Cornell University in social work and he wants to work with kids. So he befriends a local reverend through the Parks family and he then goes to people that he knows at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge and says, hey, this guy's qualified, get him going. And they found out really quickly that he knew next to nothing about social work or dealing with children. And they had called up and found out fairly quickly, like literally within days, that he was not a graduate of Cornell. And that's when the reverend said, well, maybe this guy's whole story is fake. So the reverend on his own called up TWA and said, hey, do you have a furloughed pilot by the name of Frank Abagnale? They said, oh, we know about this guy. He's a nuisance. He's been trying to cash him checks and he's taken a couple of flights with us. So they, were, they, they knew of him. So the Reverend then calls the police and on Valentine's Day, 1969, they arrest Mr. Abagnale on vagrancy. And then that was the little newspaper article that I had uh, discovered on Genealogy Bank. And then he, he, he actually had the nerve to call up the Parks family and ask them to post his bail. By this time, the Parks family had realized that he had been writing checks off of their own account, as I said, taking the mother, uh, buying the mother flowers and taking them out to dinner and so forth. So clearly they were not bailing him out. Uh, Abagnale initially tried to, you know, say none of this happened, it's all a mistake. And then he acquiesced and he confessed everything. He pleaded 
uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. So they had to go through uh, what was called then at the time a sanity commission. Uh, of course, he was found sane and, and uh, well aware of mm-hmm. what he was doing. And in June, so this whole thing dragged on for half a year. And in June of 1969, 21-year-old Frank Abagnale was convicted uh, and sentenced. And he was sentenced to 12 years. And, and I think this is such an important point. He was given, instead of time in Angola, which is Louisiana State Penitentiary, one of the most horrendous prisons in the United States. How was it that he was able to dance through uh, and go and get probation and psychiatric treatment instead of a, a, you know, a jail sentence? Now, of course, this is where it started to unravel because Paula told me, hey, look, I've got these letters that Abagnale wrote to my family from the Baton Rouge jailhouse and also letters from his parents Frank Sr. and his mother, Paulette, written on behalf, basically suggesting, please, you know, get him the mental health treatment that he needs. And in the letter from Paulette, Frank's mother, she discloses that Frank had been in Comstock Great Meadow Prison for three years between the ages of 17 and 20, essentially. So what that meant was for the first time, we could go to the New York archives, find a record that no one else had ever been put into print that I could ever see. And it placed him as a teenager in jail and or in prison. So that gave me the breadcrumbs that I needed to start working backwards then to find out everything that he did prior to Baton Rouge. So it eradicates and, the entire supposed timeline right there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So this, this is the thing. His primary claims on to tell the truth and in print media in the three years leading up to his 1980 autobiography was that for two years between the ages of 16 and 18, he traveled 2 million miles around the world as a Pan Am Airlines co-pilot, that for one year he was an assistant state attorney general in Baton Rouge. For almost one year, he was a Georgia supervising pediatrician in a Georgia hospital, and that for two full semesters, he was a PhD holding professor of sociology at Brigham Young University. So those are all the claims. And again, the timeline's important because when you know where he is between the ages of 17 and 20, and come to find out, Alan, that when Paula Parks met the furloughed pilot, TWA pilot, Frank Abagnale, on that fateful flight from New York to Miami, he had just been released days earlier on December 24th, 1968, from Great Meadow Prison Comstock. So he quickly scrambled when he was released on Christmas Eve, he quickly scrambled and somehow scrounged up a TWA costume, got on that flight with Paula, but was then quickly apprehended on February 14th. And if you're following with that timeline, it means he was only on the go for about seven weeks. Then you know he's arrested on February 14th of 1969, and he doesn't, he's there in Baton Rouge until the summer of 69. Now I'll ask a rhetorical question. Do you think that he followed through on his psychiatric treatment and his probation that he so desperately based on human nature absolutely not (laughs) exactly so he fled the psychiatric treatment in the summer of 69 he wasn't at uh, upstate new york at woodstock we know that for a fact because we know that he went to sweden if you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America, and I can tell you already that this is one of my favorite episodes. Why? Because we have a very, very thorough, engaging, and um, perceptive author, Dr. Alan C. Logan, and he is the author of a new book entitled The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Catching the Truth While We Can. If it sounds familiar, it's really uh, a continuation of fact in this case, Uh, of uh, eradicating myth and lies and uh, false indicators, originally found in the book Catch Me If You Can. Now, you probably recognize that title from the 2002 Steven Spielberg film, perhaps, or the actual book that came out that preceded it uh, in 1980 uh, by Mr. Frank 
Abagnale. Now, he is the individual that was personified later by Leonardo DiCaprio in the motion picture with Tom Hanks in pursuit as an FBI agent who seems to have gotten one over on everybody. But it doesn't seem to be malicious the way it's presented in the film, quite charming, entertaining, uh, without question. However, that's not the truth. As my guest, Dr. Alan C. Logan, has discovered, uh, he left quite a bit of mayhem and wreckage of people's personal lives. Uh, and in fact, the timeline supposedly displayed both in the book and in the film um, do not hold up, uh, do not hold muster at all to the reality of incarceration records and so on and so forth. So again, we pick up now with Dr. Alan C. Logan. I, I do want to ask you as we continue, what is the pivotal spin where he takes this chaos, this in- incarceration um, this fantasy realm and is able to actually make it a, a thriving, if you will, business for himself, where he yet again uh, changes, to make reference to a David Bowie illusion, uh, changes into now a kind of, if you will, um, underworld um, uh, adventurer anti-hero. Yeah, that to me is probably the most fascinating part of this entire tale. It's like, how does a guy create this? And and did he do it alone? And then how did it become, how did he somehow hop, skip and jump to the most highly rated television show in 1978, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? And what are the mechanics behind that? And I, I would certainly love to to, to get into that. And in order to do that, I think we have to talk about his ultimate arrest in 1970 at 22 years old and his conviction and his release on parole to Houston. And then the shenanigans that he got up to after that. So is it okay to go there? Absolutely. Yeah. Hit green, so, go. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. So to, to keep the Euro, the Europe side of this pretty brief. He fled from Baton Rouge. He went to France and Sweden, again, doing the TWA a pilot ruse. He showed up on a car lot of a guy called Jan Hillman. It was a family man. And he hoodwinked a car out of him, which he drove down to the south of France, Montpellier. Hillman knew fairly quickly that he had been ripped off and alerted the authorities. And Abagnale was quickly arrested in Montpellier. Again, there wasn't a really a long cat and mouse chase in Europe. That only lasted a matter of weeks. He served, all told, about four months in uh, Perpignan prison in the south of France and then was extradited to Sweden where he faced the charges. And just to show you how the criminal justice system is so lenient, you know, here we have this recidivist and you had multiple witnesses, two families that were ripped off in, in uh, Sweden, and he was sentenced to two months in, in a Swedish jail which even Abagnale concedes was a fairly nice place. In fact, it was so nice, he appealed the sentence, not on his conviction, but uh, he didn't want to leave Sweden and he didn't want to be deported back to the States. But ultimately they said, you can't be trusted. You're not going to be a good citizen here. They deported him. They ordered restitution and he was not to be back in Sweden for eight years. So now he arrives back in the United States and he's made up uh, grand claims about when the plane touched down with his deportation, he figured the FBI was waiting for him. So he made a daring escape through the airliner toilet. He said this in many, many interviews. It's in his autobiography and it's just defies all logic. More recently, because airline engineers have shown it to be impossible, he blamed it on Spielberg. And in his talks at Google, he said that Steven Spielberg made that up, that he, Abagnale, actually escaped through the kitchen galley. So this, we have an abundance of him on record saying he escaped through the toilet. The, the, the bathroom uh, scenario, actually, in the film, they depict him uh, as actually coming down through the landing gear uh, and how one gets through from an encasement for uh, human excrement, clean, mind you, <laughs> going through the toilet <laughs> and onto a, a runway. Is this like, uh, I don't know. My question is, how do you get onto the Google campus? You know, with, yeah, with a, yeah. the world's most powerful company that, in fairness to them, do make the, uh, their best effort to, you know, clean up facts and clean up misinformation. How did this guy get on there and mm. and say things that are demonstrably false? But now we'll go back to 
his arrival and what really happened. If you want to know the, the tiny grains of truth that make the film catch me if you can what it is, it happens when Abigail is 22 years old in the autumn of 1970. There's a really, it's a three month long brief chase, we'll call it, where Abignale decided that he was going to take a typewriter and dress up a personal check as a paycheck. Type in Pan American Airlines in the top left-hand corner. It seems that he did use an, uh, an airline decal. And he did it 10 times in different states. We know this because the 10 checks made their way to Pan Am. And they're like, what's this? We don't have an Abignale here. He's using his real name, by the way. Through everything that he did, he used his real name at each of the locations the A4 mentioned, whether it was the, the uh, arrest in Eureka, California, um, down in Baton Rouge, in Sweden, they all his real name, and that's what he was doing with the Pan Am checks. What, what do you so make quickly... of that? that if, just to interject for a second, that, that's mm. quite fascinating to me. Um, I mean, we do have people who are obsessed with others, and for instance, uh, the, the assassin of, of John Lennon uh, wrote his his name as John Lennon in a, inscribed staying at a hotel and what have you. So we sometimes have people who would take the persona of somebody else famous perhaps and, and try and utilize it. But he is quite uh, comfortable using his own name, which seems contrary to um, what one would suspect would be the uh, initial motivation. Yeah, completely agree. It's just sort of just driven by ego and the notion that he just wanted to be him. And in the letters that he wrote from the Baton Rouge jailhouse, which arguably might be the closest you would get to authenticity to some extent, that he said in those letters that he always felt that he had to be a fake in order to be, you know, appreciated or, you know, to gain attention. So the, those were in his own words uh, while he was facing 12 years in Angola. So, yeah, the, the, it's a great question, but in terms of the mythology of Catch Me If You Can, where he was this master thief who had all these different aliases, none of that appears to be true at all. He's, he's cashing these checks, and, and we know that they, they ultimately became part of his criminal uh, case, which I was able to get all those federal court records. And the grand total of Abagnale's spree in the autumn of 1970 was less than 1500 US dollars of these Pan Am checks. It lasted three months, as I said, he was arrested on November 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia. And he has, he claimed in many times, even in To Tell the Truth, the video, which is on YouTube, if anyone cares to look at it, he claimed he escaped from the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, which is one of the most secure facilities in the United States at the time. Reality is he was never housed there. He, when he was arrested in Atlanta, he was housed in a local jail, uh, Cobb County Jail. And while deputies were doing paperwork, he bolted out the door and was quickly rearrested a few days later while trying to cash another Pan Am check in New York City. And then was, you know, brought back down to, to face the penalty. He pled guilty and was sentenced to 10 years uh, in federal prison. He only served a little over three. and he was officially paroled in February of 1974. And the movie and the books and the marketing and everything else makes the claim that he was paroled out of the federal minimum security prison in, in Virginia down to Houston. And that he immediately, after dabbling in some jobs that he couldn't get, but he went there at the behest of the FBI and worked for them and started training and educating and so on. The problem with that narrative is that when Abagnale showed up in Houston in 1974, one of the things that we do know that he did was drive about a half hour south to Friendswood, Texas, which is in the shadow of NASA's mission control, and showed up at a kid's camp and said, hey, I'm a furloughed Delta Airlines pilot. He shows up in the office wearing uh, a Delta Airlines uniform. And he says, I'm looking for a, a summer job. I've been furloughed. So the, the proprietor of the camp was pinching himself. Wow, an experienced pilot. He's just looking for a bit of a summer gig. And he charges Abigail with a general, you know, kind of go for errand boy. And he was embarrassed to do so. But Abigail said, I'm, I'm fine with that. And he gave him the job driving kids around to and from the camp every day, the commuters. Now, you could imagine a convicted felon showing up in Friendswood, Texas, 
with a doctored resume today, if this happened, I mean, they would throw the book at him. Yes. So he's doing this for the summer. I ended up tracking down the camp counselors. There's photographs of Abigail in this little camp uniform, uh, along with the other camp counselors at Camp Madison. It's now defunct. It's not there anymore. And they all said, wow, yeah, he was laying it on thick. But one thing that he did do was hoodwink uh, one of the camp counselors to make him up a phony um, Delta Airlines ID card. And as the summer wore on, things were going missing. Items were disappearing. The proprietor of the camp discovered that the billing on the gas money for the the, uh, buses that Abingham was driving around was just not adding up. So they reported the thefts and it was quickly learned that Abagnale was the culprit. He was arrested in Friendswood in 1974 around Labor Day. And there's a photograph of of, uh, his mugshot at the Friendswood Police Department. The complainant in that case, I tracked him down. Morris Fusilier ended up getting restitution back for all of the items that were stolen from him. And the next thing we know, Abagnale is landing a gig at Aetna the insurance company, and goes up to Connecticut for training. They ended up suing him for check fraud in Harris County. So again, the point I'm making is the notion that he was sprung uh, out of federal prison to go work for the FBI, and that's kind of how the story ends. It's far from it. So this leads us then to this meteoric rise. How do you get from being canned at Aetna? In fact, if you look at the, the... paperwork that was filed when Aetna sued Abagnale for check fraud in Harris County. They chose not to pursue criminal charges. They went civilly. And they actually were determining where he is to try to get their money back while Abagnale was appearing on national television on To Tell the Truth. So it's really <laughs> phenomenal. So they're, they're looking to serve papers on him for check fraud on the very day more or less, that he is appearing on To Tell the Truth. And Abigail made up all these fantastical tales, uh, including the, the Grand Escape and you know being a pilot, being an attorney general. To me, that's the most outlandish of all. Out of everything that he claimed to do, being an assistant state attorney general is just beyond the pale. It's a civil service job. There would be multiple people. He said he passed the bar exam. All these things are, if you really do the hard work, you can verify them. And in 1978, journalist Ira Perry did just that. Is this an example of the bigger the lie, the easier to believe? I, I think so. I think so, Alan. I really do. I think this is you know, one of the things we hear. And, the, and also, the more that it gets repeated, uh, you said that right from the top, and it's so true. You keep repeating this. And it just becomes accepted as being a truth. So your point was that the individual continues to say it to themselves and it becomes true to them. I think you can extend that out to the larger scale. And and you know what? Who, who would You would think that there had to be an immense amount of fact-checking if you're going to have the biggest name in Hollywood directing and producing a film with A-listers. This is not some you know, low-level, you know, grade Z effort. You would think that there would be tremendous amount of fact-checking from top to bottom uh, along the way, but it, it wasn't. It just kept going and going. And a lot of that has to do, I think, with the, the fact that the two journalists I've mentioned, Stephen Hall from the San Francisco Chronicle, Ira Perry from the Daily Oklahoman, and Perry's in particular was an, an extensive like four-page takedown of all the claims. But it was pre-digital. It stayed locally. And with due respect to Oklahoma City, it just it didn't have the reach where he published his um, his debunking exercise. So, you know, you can't compete with being on the Tonight Show. Abigail was on there a total five times, you know, between his very first appearance. Wow. So even they even though they'd been warned, Freddie DeCovita, yes. who is the producer, was the producer of the Tonight Show, permitted this guy to come on even after all of the allegations of untruth. It's astonishing. The interesting thing about it, Alan, is that after the debunking, Stephen Hall excoriated the fact that this guy was on The Tonight Show. Yes. And after that, Abagnale was not interviewed by Carson again. 
So okay. he made it back on the show when Joan Rivers was on there. Can we talk? He, Can we talk? <laughs> exactly. And then an, another time when there was another guest host. So Carson never interviewed Abingdale again. He did get back on there. But to your point, there's no question that they knew about it because after Abingdale was on The Tonight Show, the National Enquirer contacted the first assistant attorney general, Afer mentioned, Ken Dejan. And he, he said, look, please do me a favor. Ask Abigail if he worked here for a year and, co- and closed 33 cases, ask him to describe what the Attorney General Jack P.F. Gremian looks like. Ask him to describe the offices. Ask him what floor they're on. So the National Enquirer of all outlets yes, did just yeah, that. Yeah. And Abigail couldn't answer a single question correctly. He described Attorney General Gremian as being about six foot tall, blonde hair, slim, athletic. Gremian was actually like five, six, portly, bald. And he was getting the questions wrong. And the National Enquirer concluded, look, this is garbage. We're not going to run with this. And so they did <laughs> That's an indictment in of itself if the National Enquirer won't touch it. <laughs> Amen, sir. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Your book raises a much broader question. Your book causes one to question if the press intentionally obfuscates the truth or merely fails to seek it. I mean, I would say in either case, it would seem an abdication of, uh, of duty, you know, derelict. I mean, one, we've always thought that the, there is this uh, pantheon, that there's this, this group of, of journalists who want to get the story and want to get to the truth. Evidently not so, save for a few exceptions, uh, the, the reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle, the other one, and of all things, as you've just noted, the National Enquirer. What do you make of this? It's a great question, and that is really the heart of the matter, because if I, I only got involved in this because of that, like to query that a little bit and, and, and to query how is it that some stories that are falsehoods continue to be propagated? How is it that other stories, incredible truths that we should be discussing in the public sphere get papered over? With regard to the the notion of, you know, abdication, I, I think you have to go to the root. And this takes us to the mechanics of how this happened. So Leo Langlois and Stan Redding, Leo Langlois was is known according to some academic textbooks, as the greatest hidden persuader of the 20th century. He's a marketing man and, you know, had basically helped to market the moonshot uh, with NASA, and he branched out on his own. He had MGM connections. Stan Redding was Abigail's 1980 co-author, was a one-time Houston Chronicle reporter who was a good reporter at one time, and then I think he lost the plot. And in 1977, after To Tell the Truth, Stan Redding wrote Abagnale's story up as a cover story in the Houston Chronicle magazine. At the time, the Sunday Houston Chronicle had one of the highest circulations in the nation as a newspaper. Mm. So you can imagine people waking up in the morning sure. and all over their doorsteps, yes. front page, Abagnale is on their doorstep. And Redding wrote a tale that is so unbelievable. Now, let's take that back to the question. Journalists were sort of rinsing and repeating this because you would have thought that Redding had done his job, that Redding was sharp, that Redding had investigated it. What Redding did not disclose in the Houston Chronicle article was that he and Langlois and Abagnale were all working together to get a book going and a movie deal, which they subsequently shopped to Bud Yorkin, you see. So when you have a journalist who kind of checks out the way that Redding did, other journalists would be like, okay, well, this journalist must have checked everything out. It must be good because Abigail was very clever. He took Redding's Houston Chronicle article and he incorporated the, the vast majority of it into his press kit. So in fairness to some of the journalists who were under the gun and they looked at his press kit and then they saw this has basically been replicated, copyright permission of the Houston Chronicle, you can sort of see how it builds. But the other side of that is that Stephen Hall, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Ira Perry showed that even under a tight deadline, you could investigate his claims and determine that most of them are untrue. 
Dr. Alan Logan, what do you make of the fact that Spielberg went along with this work? I don't know if it's a DreamWorks production, I presume it was. Um, if that's the case, why did it uh, not seem questionable, spurious um, to Spielberg and crew? Or did, did they at that point say, hey, we smell a rat here, but we're too, too far into this thing with production and uh, we've got a release date coming up, etc.? It's it's another great question, and I would hope that some with access might ask Spielberg and others what they think about the revelations that Abagnale was in, incarcerated for most of the years between 1965 and 1974. Um, I will say this, uh, if I can, I'm, you know, I'm not a professional investigator. I took, you know, my knowledge of genealogy and working newspapers and public records. If I can do this, why didn't it happen? Mm. You know, when this film was released on DVD, they put a, a second special features DVD and they talk about behind the scenes. And Abagnale's on that and he's making all of his claims, the aforementioned claims. We don't need to repeat them again. But what's really important about that is that there's inferences there that the FBI verified everything. The inferences, what the FBI on the set was, this is of course retired agents, they go on the set and they try to they try to create the sets as accurately as they can. They make claims in the DVD that they were so diligent about creating this film that they even got era-specific door frames. That's how diligent they were. Wow. But if it's really, really careful, Alan, they do not mention that they verified the accuracy of Abagnale's tale. What they do say only is that it is inspired by a true story. So, <laughs> so yeah, many, yeah. It, yeah. It, it's a tough one for me. I don't want to, yeah. you know, present there to be any malice, but I will, I'll, for your listeners, you asked the tough question. So I will say this in the special features DVD, Steven Spielberg says, quote, Frank Abagnale is a victim of his own innocence, end quote. Wow. I would absolutely disagree with that. And I've spoken to the victims because that's the other thing we really haven't gotten into too much here. There are victims here mm. and their stories have never been told. Yes. So yes. the whole thing's enjoyable because it's a victimless rump, as one uh, media critic said at the time. I see it really, really differently. I want to hear from the voices of the people that actually interacted with him. And I, I, I completely disagree with Spielberg's assessment. Did you actually try and reach out to Frank Abagnale um, at any point? And if so, what was the response or perhaps lack of response? Yeah, so I didn't. And when I started, you know, looking at all the public records and realizing they were completely conflicting with the claims, and especially when I got to the research of Professor Bill Tony, who in 1982 absolutely destroyed Abagnale's claims. And he was the one that cautioned when he was alive and that it was a fool's errand to try to ask him what the truth was. So mm -hmm. I didn't really see much value in that. Um, other news outlets have contacted him since. Uh, your colleagues at NPR have uh, and others, and he has consistently said he has not read the book and he quote, doesn't think it's worthy of comment. So that's kind of where we're at today. What is he actually doing? It's estimated that he's worth about $10 million. So is he resting happy somewhere on, you know, off uh, in Lake Tahoe or somewhere? I mean, what, to your knowledge, is he, is he doing now? And is he still, does he still have the um, gumption and the audacity, perhaps, depending on how you look at it, to actually try and be on, a, you know, a speaker's jaunt across America or elsewhere? Or has he gone quiet? Well, if prior to your colleagues at NPR discussing this in the public forum, he was still claiming all of the primary claims were in place. He was claiming that he's an ethics instructor at the FBI Academy. And he was still, that's in print, that's, that's in the press. That's not me that's making that up. Um, it, he told the uh, <laughs> Minneapolis Star, I believe it was, but I, it was one, it was, it's in print, it's, it's referenced, and he's told it to several uh, authors. He said that someone at the FBI said, who, quote, who better than you to teach ethics? So is that true? <laughs> I don't know. 
I heard that his son, he said that his son has gone to become an FBI agent and he's so proud considering his own background that his son would be an FBI agent. Uh, is there any uh, veracity to that uh, that you're aware of, any, any truth? That's in, in print in several places, so I have no reason to, to doubt the accuracy of that particular comment um, yeah. you know, regarding his son. But the, the comment of, of him being an ethics instructor at the FBI Academy, I do think that warrants um, you know, query uh, by journalists who, who can get a comment to find out what's what. But to your answer your question, he main, has maintained, I should say, prior to you know, the NPR discussing some of the, the details uh, and the facts here, a vigorous speaking schedule, making as much as 30,000 US dollars per appearance. Mm. And, you know, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, I think if he's going to go and give a talk about, you know, the world of security, and then then fair play to him. I mean, that it's not for me to say he's not an expert in that field. It's actually the the dinner talks that dis, where he discusses his life history, that's at odds with the the public record. That's the part that really gets me. And then also papers over the fact that there's no victims. I should add really quickly that Paula Parks, the aforementioned Delta Airlines flight attendant, confronted him in Baton Rouge and just before the pandemic in February 2020. And he made no effort whatsoever to really apologize to her and, and, and embrace her and say, wow, I'm so sorry for what I did to your family. Mm, mm. She essentially had to con him out of an apology in writing. So that, that, uh, you know, that upsets me just on an individual level yes. for, for Paul. It'll be interesting to see if he confronts this or just, you know, lets it go. Yeah, I think we'll, we will try and reach out to him, but I don't expect <laughs> any response. Dr. Alan C. Logan I want to tell you that I've so enjoyed this time with you. The book is entitled The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Catching Truth While We Can. And I want to say, uh, Dr. Alan C. Logan, that you're one of the greatest guests uh, we've had on this show. I'm so grateful for your, um, your, your insight and clarity uh, in the way you describe issues that otherwise have gone, for the large part, unnoted about this very... Um, anti-hero figure that people see as a kind of a, oh, benign cowboy of trickery, uh, when in fact uh, it seems from your book that he is anything but that, leaving, um, as one would say, with the proverbial breadcrumbs, a trail of people who have been robbed and cheated and maligned and uh, also uh, threatened by his endeavors. Thank you so very, very much. Um, What's next for you? What will you do after this? Well, one of the things I'm looking at right now, actually, is the process of, you know, what's happened post the book. And and just to go back to some of the questions that you were raising uh, about truth and how certain stories get elevated and others don't. I I think what's happening after the, the, the book has come out has actually been equally interesting. And I think the next writing will be on sort of of truth and misinformation of sorts. As a fellow doctor, a fellow Alan, and a fellow individual that came from across the pond, as we both did, I'm so glad that you are now a part of the fabric of America and uh, you offer these very, very worthy words that has a, you know, even an overarching question as we've looked at, you know, what is truth? How do we define truth? And in fact, are we pursuing it? And can we even recognize it? The author, Dr. Alan C. Logan, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Catching the Truth While We Can. Thank you, sir. I wish you great blessings. Thank you, Alan. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.